So, any questions? Even though one can really attain all perfection by Sharanagati alone, if one is desirous of relishing some special aspect of bhajan, then he should, if, all, if at all possible, take care to constantly serve both the Shiksha Guru who teaches the Shastras related to the Lord and the Diksha Guru who has instructed him in the Lord's mantra. Only by the Guru's mercy can one please the Lord and be freed from anartas, which are otherwise very difficult to shake. Thus, the satisfaction of the Guru is the main cause of attaining divine love and service. So I guess I'm, I have a question about this. Um, even though one can really attain all perfection by Sharanagati alone. So what is that? I wasn't really sure what, what is meant by that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then it's saying that if you want some special aspect of Bhajan, then you should take shelter of the Guru and his mercy. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Actually, um, in his uh, Gita commentary, Ramanuja Charya, who is a great Vaishnav saint in uh, a different, as you, you know, Sampradaya lineage than ours, he predates Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's appearance in the world, Ramanuja. Ramanuja means the, the younger brother of Ram, so that's a name for Krishna. He wrote a beautiful, beautiful uh, commentary on Bhagavad Gita. Very profound, very well thought out, and um, maybe one of the um, earliest uh, commentaries from a Vaishnav perspective, a purely Vaishnav perspective. Anyway, he has a little bit of a different approach, and he sees the... He emphasizes the post-liberated status of bhakti, which we also emphasize, but we also emphasize the generosity of, of bhakti, who, while transcending liberation in a sense, at the same time extends herself to the most unqualified person who may not even be qualified for the karma marg. And uh, so he goes through his whole progression in the Gita, emphasizing karma and, uh, and jnana and a gradual qualification one arrives at to then take up bhakti, like, for example, Brahma Bhuta Prasanatma Naso Chutena Kangshati Samasarveshu Bhuteshu Mad Bhaktim Labhate Param. So he would render it like that. Having attained then gyan, knowledge of the self, one comes to bhakti. So again, he's stressing the post-liberated status of bhakti. But then when he comes to the, what's sometimes considered the, the conclusion of the Gita, sarva-dharman pritya-jamamekam sharanam raja, which is about sharanagati, atma-samarpana, then he says, but if one does sharanagati, then everything can come. That's a fact. Full sharanagati, from any position, from a very unqualified person if they do sharanagati. And there are some nice examples of that in Ramanuja Sampradaya and in, uh, other Vaidhi Marg Sampradayas. These are Sampradayas that lead to Vaikuntha and reverential love of God, rather than what Jiva Goswami is referring to when he says a specific relationship this is the general relationship. Jivera Swarupoi Krishna Nityadasa. Everyone's in potential and from a point of view of the Nityadharma, of the Jiva, everyone's servant of, of Bhagawan. The name Krishna is used, but it means servant of Bhagawan. So Vaikuntha is that place where everyone's a servant. And some are just a kind of little below servant in the sense that they just meditate. They don't do any service. There's people in Vaikuntha that just meditate. It's an interesting place. So the general idea in Vaishnavism is that in lineages like Ramanuja and Madhva and so forth, which are so prominent and they're the early 
Vaishnava Sampradayas in the south, for example, referred to in the Bhagavat. It's mentioned in the Bhagavat, and bhakti will flourish in the south along the banks of the Kaveri and so forth. The place in the Srinivas likes down there. It's very, you know, still has a kind of a romantic feel where the sannyasis only bathe in the rivers and so forth. And their goal is mukti, but it's it's a devotional kind of mukti. Sarvabhumbhattacharya didn't like the word mukti after he had been converted by Mahaprabhu. He found the word in a very nice sloka from Srimad Bhagavatam. What is that verse? Tate nukampam susamikshamana bhumjane vatmakutam vipakam vidvagvapu vidam namaste jiveta yo mukti pade sadayabhak. When he got to the word mukti, he wanted to cross it out and change it to bhakti. Mahaprabhu was, internally he was pleased with him because he, from this, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> from this he could understand that the conversion of Sarvabhamacharya, but the charger was, was complete, was comprehensive. He had already personally tested him with regard to karma. Karma and gyan should not cover our bhakti. If it is shuddha bhakti, pure bhakti, then it is not encumbered by jnana and karma. It means it's not, it's not encumbered, it doesn't become merely a means for material acquisition or for liberation. It's not burdened by that. It's not, its independent nature is understood and, and is pursued. Shuddha bhakti, jnana karma adhyana This is the marginal tadastalakshan, marginal characteristic of pure devotion, that it's not covered by gan and karma, by the desire, fruit of desire or desire for liberation. Well, one doesn't think in Shuddha Bhakti that if I don't do, for example, in relation to karma, some obligatory act prescribed in the scripture for human society in terms of its being organized in relation to the gunas, Varnashram system, if they don't do that, then so that'll be a problem for me. I might do bhakti, but if I, do, if I don't do this, I don't attend to the uh, shraddha ceremony for my deceased father, I'll, I may go to hell. One has no fear. Sarvadharman, paritya mamikam, sharanam. has no fear of that. So anyway, Bhattacharya Sarvabhoma was converted to bhakti by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu personally. And to test the measure of his conversion, the Bhattacharya came to his house early, early in the morning, right after Jagannath Swami's Mangal Artik, bringing the, the uh, Jagannath Prashad to his house. Oh, Bhattacharya, get up. I brought Mahaprasad from the lips of Jagannath Swami. Come and taste it honor it. And so normally then, according to the karma mark, then there'll be certain rituals one has to perform and procedures before sitting and taking, honoring the prasad. So you have to get up and brush your teeth, bathe and this and that. So, but the charges got up and, and took prasad, honored the prasad, quoted some nice prayers about prasad should be taken anywhere of, of the deity anywhere, anytime, any place. There's no prerequisite, there it always remains pure, and so forth. So, his bhakti wasn't covered by karma. Mahaprabhu was very pleased. And then, this instance here, he demonstrated that he was the general idea of bhakti, that, or of, of mukti, that comes to the mind when the word is uttered, that um, doesn't necessarily include bhakti in it. It was not appealing to him. So Mahaprabhu was, as I say, internally he was very pleased. Oh, Sabrabhavan has no desire for mukti. He's not doing his bhakti for mukti. No. But externally he was a little upset. He said, you, you can't change the words of Srimad Bhagavatam. You can't do that. But I appreciate where you're, <laughs> where you're coming from. He said, think of it like this. Jiveta yo mukti pade, Mukti pade. Mukti pade. At the feet of he who can give mukti. So, this is the then the devotional idea of mukti.
So, as I've said before, the idea of prem prayojan, prem prayojan, this is unique to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's uh, lineage. Prema Pumarto Mahan, Prem Prayojan, Panchama Purusharta. Panchama means what? Pancha? Five. Fifth. Fifth, right. Fifth goal of life. Now, that doesn't sound very ex- extraordinary to us, but in the culture that this idea arose in, there's only four goals of life. Purusharta. Purusharta for the living beings, the artha, what is attainable, that has meaning, that has value, that is fourfold. Dharma, artha, kama, and moksha, or mukti. And mukti is the ultimate value. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu came along and, and, and he said, well, I was, we're positing a fifth goal of life. So that was a very revolutionary thing. And that panchama, purusharta, the fifth goal of life, Prema Pumarto Mahan, Prem Prayojan. The goal is the ideal is Prem. So it's a unique use of the word Prem. And it refers specifically then to Goloka and to the Braj Bhakti and a specific relationship with uh, cherished in one's heart to serve Krishna and Bhagwan in a particular way rather than just as a das, serving God. He's differentiating there, Jiva Goswami, between, this is the general idea of Bhagavanta, everyone is servant of Bhagwan, and so there's Bhagwan and there's servants. So these sampradayas like Ramanuja, Madhvanta, they, they're aiming for that. They, they say their goal is mukti. Now, we should note that Jiva Goswami does acknowledge that there is prem, in Vaikuntha, in other words, in a sense that there's love of God, and Dasya Bhakti, love in, uh, in mood of a servant, and reverential love is perfect and pure, and it is love. But characteristically, Gaudiya Vaishnavism uses the word prem in another way, to, as I say, make it the goal, and the nature of that prem is so different, it's, it's a, actually a, a development of what's going on in the Vaikuntha, but it's, it takes such a form, such a shape, that it, it really looks so different practically that it, it looks like it might be the opposite of servitude to God. After all, when Krishna's friend is pinning him to the ground in a wrestling match and defeating him and saying, so, now you have to carry me on your shoulders, you're the loser, this doesn't look like what's going on in Vaikuntha. It, these are worlds apart. It looks like if that's Bhagawan and you're dealing with like that, you're a demon. You must be a demon. So <laughs> it's a very, very different idea. And so Prem Prayojan. And as much as the word Prem is used in that way, the word Mukti is also not much appreciated, although it generally can be said, as I say, to refer to devotional mukti, liberation in Vaikuntha and so forth. So, from Sharanagati, you're going to get that. By complete uh, atmasamarpan, self-resignation and so forth, you can arrive at that. This is the teaching of the Gita. And Ramanuja, at that point, he makes this point, very nice, after saying, you know, it's a progression and so forth, and you have to become qualified with jnana, then you will get bhakti and, and so forth. He says, but if someone just completely does sharanagati, surrenders himself entirely from any position, then he says, we don't deny that. This is being said here. Sarvadharman prataja mami kam sharanam brahja. Now, that makes our path very specific. Rag bhakti is, is, is specific. Bhakti is a, is a kind of a bias and it is very, count of that, it's very particular. Maybe Ram bhakti have a bias for Ram or Krishna bhakti and a bias for, for Krishna and so forth. You don't 
so much find this the full manifestation of this bias in, in Vaikuntha. Everyone serving Narayan, he shows himself in different forms at different times, and it's appreciated and so on. But Narayan is the Godhead, the full face of the Godhead. So, Rag Bhakti is very, uh, very specific. And for that, there's a very specific path. Indeed, the lady of the Lord, of Vaikuntha, could not attain that, even though she desired such. Lakshmi wanted to participate in the, in the rasa dance, rasa lila with the gopis, like and interact with Bhagawan as, as they did. But in order to do that, she settled in the braj and did tapasya, austerities, self kind of sacrifice of foregoing a life of, of luxury that the goddess of fortune is accustomed to. You can imagine how extreme that is. This is the goddess of fortune. So, you know, if you get her blessing, you're, you're, you've got, you know, you're, you're living the, the life of luxury, life of ease. So what is her life like? And she took off all of her ornaments and her beautiful gold and embroidered sari and her earrings and, uh, and everything. And, uh, and just put on a white robe and sat down in the brudge and performed austerities fasting. I mean, this is Lakshmi. She decided to fast and perform penances and so forth. So this is a huge undertaking on the part of the goddess of, of fortune, a huge distance that she was willing to go in order to attain that. She thought, I've given my all in all here. What more can you expect? I'm Lakshmi. Here I am, going to, I'm going to, just going to go sit in a, on, a, on a cow paddy, you know, in the pasture or the, in the forest with the cow people, jungle people. That's how they're, they're thought to be, jungle people. They live out there somewhere, they take care of the cows. We just get the milk here, you know. And they, they live with the cows. They're kind of like the cows, because who you associate with them, that's what you become like. So, cows are nice, but, you know, we don't let them in the house, <laughs> kind of a thing, in the, in the palace, you know, except on special occasions. Um, so, there she was, I and mean, she had this was a huge undertaking for her, a huge willingness to change in order to attain her ideal. And how far did she get? Nowhere. <laughs> she couldn't get anywhere by that. So to get that, the idea is there's a very special path, very particular path, not just any ordinary path, even as such that Lakshmi has taken of austerities and penances. Can you get there by that? This is the question raised by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu at Sri Rangam itself, the capital of the Sri Vaishnavas in South India, to Venkata, Venkata Bhatta, whose son was Gopal Bhatta, whose brother was promoted on the Saraswati. These became, they all became great Godias. Someone asked me, uh, Gorbi Jai had, um, had spoken with uh, an Indian fellow who questioned the divinity of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Well, I think he's the Ramanuja, member of the Ramanuja Sampradaya by birth or family connection and so forth. He's questioning the divinity of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And um, he said, you know, in Bengal, they've got all kinds of people who become incarnations. And in fact, there are a lot of new incarnations, uh, reincarnations of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and so forth. So, you know, they make up, in India, it makes up gods and goddesses all the time. And, and Bengal is particularly noted for it, apparently. So, you know, he's a saint, but that he's... Krishna himself, he, he found it to be a bit of a stretch. So I replied, I said, well, of course, there's a scriptural support for the idea of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu being God, and he also showed godly prowess, super extraordinary power, and that power primarily was not, you know, like stick out your tongue and there's a fire on it. You can find people like that in India, tantrics and so forth, not those kind of power. But he did uh, some miracles, if you will, but there was, were minor things. What he really did was he, he showed such love 
overwhelming love that just by looking at him you would melt in love. <laughs> That's pretty powerful. I was with Prabhupada once in, in Hyderabad. He was giving a series of lectures. It was 1975, the year that I took Sanyas, just about this time, uh, you know, however many years that was ago, 1975. We went from Hyderabad to Vrindavan, then there in Vrindavan, Prabhupada gave me Sanyas. And on this stage, he was lecturing to thousands and thousands and thousands of people had come. And after the lecture, he was lecturing on the teachings of Brashavdev from Bhagavatam. Nice section. After the lecture were the questions. The fellow asked, Swamiji, is there uh, any miracles you have performed so that we may know that you are the true saint? You know, something like that. And Prabhupada said, I have not performed any miracles, but maybe one, he said. And then he pointed to us, all oh, these boys on the stage, they've all given up sex. <laughs> that is my miracle. <laughs> And people went, yeah, that's a miracle. <laughs> that's a miracle. <laughs> so Mahaprabhu did many wonderful things, but the most wonderful thing he did was that he showed such extraordinary love, such giving, so much the opposite of taking and exploitation. And, 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 and he gave that love, Mahavananaya, Krishna Prima, Pradayate. He gave it out freely to others. He didn't just keep it to himself and love has a tendency to distribute itself. So he was overflowing with that. There's a fellow, and I cited him in my first book, Rasa, a Christian uh, theologian. I think he was a Protestant theologian. I forget his name now, but he said, of all people, East and West uh, saints that I have heard of and, and read about and so forth, I think that this one, <laughs> Chaitanya of Bengal, you know, of this time, most exemplifies the love of God that Christianity speaks about, overflowing as he was, you know, in, in Jagannath Puri and falling before the deity and ecstasy and and so forth and uh, tears like like a river from his eyes of of love. Have you ever cried out of love, really you know, out of joy? What kind of ananda he had. This is kind of contradictory to cry out of happiness, right? But this is the wonderful characteristic of Prem. Outside it looks like he's crying. <laughs> Inside he's happy. So this was his super power. I mean, the kind of love that he embodied. And this is what the Goswamis tried to write about. They were saying, this kind of love is nowhere to be found in the scripture except in the person of Radha perfect embodiment of love for Krishna. And they, in aesthetic language, they explained the nature of that love, the pinnacle of love, and so forth. And they said, here it is on earth. It's right here. It's happening in the person of Chaitanya. So this was his extraordinary superhuman exhibition by which a person will be noted as a potential, you know, divine figure. And the other that Krishna gives in, in, in his Chaitanya Charitamrita is that there be scriptural reference for that. So they've marshaled these uh, Gaudiya people. We have many statements from the scripture in support of the divinity of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. But besides that, I pointed out that there were really big and important people in the country. It wasn't just your neighbor decided that his wife was Durga, you know, and uh, made a business out of it or something, or the, the tantric down the street was, you know, the incarnation of, uh, of Vishnu or something like that. And this goes on in, in India. And the fellow was saying, you know, well, this goes on. How do we know that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is God? It wasn't just, there was there were a huge number of people, but a people of a real uh, substance. I mean, Rup Sanatana, they were practically the governors of Bengal. I mean, they worked for the Nuwapu Sensa, who was the governor. And when he was on a trip to a you know, conquest of some sort or another or, or uh, taking a vacation, they ran Bengal. I mean, it's like, you know, the governor of California decides that, you know, Swami Tripurari is somebody we should listen to. You know, you know. Wow, well, maybe he's crazy, you know. But then it's the governor, he's saying this, you know. And so how many people in 
already have respect for him and his ability to that such a person to discern and that the people have voted for them, you know, or they're being cared for by them in this this context. So Rupa Sanatana, and they were learned scholars, they were Brahmins. The measure of their scriptural knowledge is absolutely mind-boggling what command they had of that. If you read the, the books that they themselves wrote and how they supported their conclusions, drawing from so many texts, it was just very, sort of remarkable in, in and of itself. Then you go, you know, Sarvabhambhattacharya was the most famous logician in all of India. He still may be today. He's mentioned in Encyclopedia Britannica, Sarvabhambhattacharya. And he, this is a really, you know, sober guy. It's like uh, in the Western world, like, you know, some big, you know, mathematician. I don't know, you know, some big scientist like uh, Einstein or something decides that this guy's God stands by it. So, so this is huge. In the, in the south, as I'm mentioning, the capital of the, of the Sri Vaishnavas, Venkatabhatta, and his brother Prabodhananda, Saraswati Sanyasi, learned. He was a Saraswati, means this is a very high title. And um, of course, uh, Venkata's son, Gopal Bhatta, from Sri Sampradaya. These were very distinguished people from Sri Sampradaya who came on board. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was God. So um, they weren't ordinary people and they amassed a whole body of, of literature to support it, independent literature that's based on the core books of the time, which were the law books of the time. So it was a very huge uh, happening, if you will, in India. Anyway, when he was south there, he it was there at the capital of the Sri Vaishnavas, that he uh, brought up the point that I've raised with regard to Lakshmi and the specificity of the path of Rag Bhakti that he is speaking about. And this specificity is important because what? Love requires specificity. The more specifics you know, the more you can love. In the Gita, Krishna's shows himself to Arjuna to be that the universe is found within me. I'm everything. And Arjuna has trouble loving that manifestation. But when that all shrinks down into the, into the two-armed chariot driver, then he can express himself in love. This is the message there. The specificity that the form, rather than the formless, as opposed to the formless, provides us with is fodder for, for loving, is fuel for loving. The more you know about some of the particulars, the details, the more you can, you can love them. And that's what it's about, pulling out, you know, I found something else about you that I didn't know. You're like this, I like that. So infinite, uh, you know, qualities. And uh, so uh, this rag bhakti, which is about loving in a very specific way, it's a very specific, particular, fine-tuned, honed path, and it requires good guidance, as Jiva Goswami is saying. With a more loose guidance, and we may go to Vaikuntha, do Sharanagati. He's not saying, well, you can do Sharanagati, you don't need a guru, that, but that's the custom, and where will we learn about these things without such? But the principle of the guru becomes much more important in Gaudiya Vaishnavism, because the Guru embodies a particular specific kind of love for Krishna that is the goal of the student. So, Lakshmi couldn't attain that, even though she made such an effort from her perspective, but because she didn't take the specific path, she still wanted to be Lakshmi. She had her Lakshmi ego. <laughs> which is a spiritual ego, and uh, she wasn't able to give that up. We have a material ego, and we're not able to give that up. Well, it will be taken away from us anyway. <laughs> attachment is what our identity is about. So this is the ragmarg. Rag means attachment. We get a very specific, particular 
identity. The identity in Vaikuntha is, a little, is much more general, and they change forms. At different times, they change forms for different services and so forth. It's more, it's more closer to formlessness. I mean, it's within Vaishnavism, and it's not, but it's the form is not as... We make a big deal here about the Siddha, Deha. It's a big deal in Gaudiya Vaishnavism. It's not in the same way in Vaidhi um, Marg and, and these uh, paths towards reverential love. In fact, in our Gaudiya Sampradaya, you cannot die and go there. You can die and go to Vaikuntha. But in the Ragmark, you have to leave this world and then take birth from a cowherd family somewhere in the world, wherever Krishna's Leela is manifest. Take birth in a cowherd family and have a cowherd ego. And then from there, you, what you have cultivated to attain that possibility, that opportunity, we call that Swarup Siddhi, to attain Swarup Siddhi, then one takes birth in a cowherd family. Got a father, got a mother, got a very specific identity that doesn't change for serving Krishna in a very specific way. And then those who do, who are accustomed to that, who, who are personify that, who embody that in perfection, we get their company. And that, that helps to then form that, that ego in that plane. And then from there, when the Leela becomes unmanifest, then you go there. Vastu Siddhi, from Swarup Siddhi to Vastu Siddhi. So it's a very specific path. Lakshmi would have to give up her husband, Narayan, and become, you know, an apparent, apparently uh, an adulteress and so forth. She just couldn't stomach that much. She's, Lakshmi, she's chased the personification of chastity, or so it's thought. Actually, Radha is more chaste, even, because why? We never find Radha thinking maybe of going with Narayan. <laughs> but we find <laughs> Lakshmi thinking of leaving Narayan for Krishna. This is the, uh, uh, the joking, if you will, of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu to Venkata, which stunned him. Right there is the capital of Sri Vaishnavism. Who can think like this? What kind of mind do you have <laughs> when you, you're thinking about Bhagwan? These kind of things are, this is beyond human possibility to, in ordinary religious life and spiritual life, you're different, you know, altogether. He said, only someone who could ask a question like that could possibly know the answer. And that is true. Krishna knows the end. Krishna at Mahaprabhu came to give that answer, to make that available. How you can attain that, that Sveta Dweep, that secret place, private island of, of God. So for that, then we need good, good guidance. But in the context of that, we also do Sharanagati. And when? From the very beginning. Dikshakale Bhakta Kore Atmasamarpan. Atmasamarpan, this is Sharanagati, Diksha Kali. Kali means time. At the time of Diksha, when one does Atmasamarpan, so these two go together. This Sharanagati is included in the whole thing, and then we go on from there. So at the time of Diksha, Mahaprabhu told Sanatana, when one does Atmasamarpan, that means Sharanagati. This is the beginning, it's not the end. For us, this is the beginning. Then, hmm, say Kali, at that time, he says, Krishna makes that devotee Atmasam, Atmasam, one with him. Say Deha, and then in that Deha, in that, that body, which is Chidanandamai, that very body becomes filled with Ananda, Chidananda. With material senses, you cannot serve Krishna. You have to get a spiritualized body. This comes at the time of Diksha. When one does Atma Samarpana, then one gets a body qualified to serve Krishna. He becomes one with Krishna. This is all in the, in the Sadaka Deha. 
he's talking about. Or to speak of the Siddha Deha then. So we do Sharanagati. That's the, uh, as I've likened it to, the stage on which the drama of bhakti will be soon to appear in your heart. Bhakti is not about giving things that we have to Krishna. It's about giving ourselves to Krishna, our whole life to Krishna. That is the difference between Nishkama Karma Yoga, where the fruits are offered to Krishna, and bhakti. So the whole the, the whole life of the devotee is consumed in, in the act of giving, so that even when he appears to be taking, it's all in the context of, of giving. You may take some food to eat, and you think, wait, what you're taking is not prasadam. Yeah, it is prasadam. You're taking fueling just to do service. He sees Bhagavan has given me some, sent, well, who else sent it? Where else does it come from? It comes from Krishna. He's absorbed in thinking like this. This is bhakti. Therefore, patram pushpam palam toyam yome bhakta prayachati tadaham bhakti paritam ashnami prayatatmana. Krishna says, offer me a flower and I'll eat it. I don't normally eat flowers. It means there's bhakti there. It's not about the offering particularly. In the karma mark, it's everything about doing it just right. All the rules right. And and bhakti mark, it's... And there's very little in there. There's very little love in there. Practically no love. I'm doing this, and you give me that. <laughs> and I'll do it just right, so you'll be pleased, and I'll get what I, what I want from that. And so there's an emphasis on doing it all right, because you've got to have, at least do something. You're not offering any, with any love, practically. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, in bhakti, it's all love. And so you can offer the... Verdura's wife can offer the banana peels and throw away the banana and Krishna will be eating the peels. And the implication of this verse too, which is the verse from Gita, ninth chapter about Shuddha Bhakti, uh, is that the whole life is engaged. It means they plant the food with the, with the idea of serving Krishna and grow it and prepare it and offer it. So it's your whole... You know, food is rather consuming aspect of human existence. So the idea of it here in relation to offering to Krishna, their whole life is being offered. So we have a very specific path. This is not the general course. This is a very extraordinary uh, dispensation of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, very extraordinary opportunity extended to human society. And it's hard to understand. If for somebody says, I don't know about this Chaitanya being God. And I was thinking about today, we could make a good argument against contemporary naturalism, materialism, naturalism, as it's called, physicalism. Uh, they kind of expand the idea as they have to recognize, well, everything's not matter. There are forces. We include them in there too, okay? Uh, <laughs> And so on, but um, a good case for consciousness and downward causation, you know, some evidence for that, that uh, we, you know, we could have a good discussion and so forth. But I was thinking about, if we have to go into the details of Krishna consciousness, then we'll, no one will, <laughs> who will listen to us. <laughs> if you want to get like really on, you know, some kind of bottom rung from our perspective about Dvaita, you know, Consciousness, formless, you know, maybe make some reasonable argument, but when you start talking about Krishna, then people have to have <laughs> some sukriti for that, for sure, to be able to catch it and appreciate it and, and go with it. But in a general way, of course, we can make a good case of that in terms of what is the nature of love. And... Um, the metaphysic of the Chintibedibeda, but it's a, it's a longer argument, a longer discussion. So very, we have a very peculiar path, and it's the path says it's peculiar, so don't wonder why. You know. I joined this, but it seems kind of odd. <laughs> don't be surprised if people think you're a little, you know, different. You know, this is the real think differently right here, you know. 
it's very, 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 very different idea. I mean, just from a religious point of view, it's it's very different. As I've many times said, everybody says that the most in religious world, the most worshipable object is God, and we're talking about the the object that God worships. Krishna's worshiping Radha. We're talking about that. We're taking Krishna Jagannath down off of his throne, dragging him through the streets. Get off that throne. You don't belong up there. Gopis are saying, you belong in my hearts. That's where you really reside. And we're just village people in samsara. So we don't have the power to transcend all that. You have to come to us. This is very radical ideas. It turns the whole religious world upside down. So it's quite peculiar. And the teaching itself, as I say, says that this is a rare thing. Krishna's made available as Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So we just feel lucky we got it. We caught the idea. Don't wait for everybody to catch up before we start to decide whether it's the right thing to do or not. <laughs> they won't. <laughs> they won't. Go for it. Good, good guidance and and go for it. What else? Another question? Yes. Is, I think this is kind of related to Charlotte as well. I've been watching my own mind recently. I've noticed the degree to which it seems to create, like, well, I'm realizing the limitations of my actually knowing other people. And I think I know other people. I think I know what the world is about and how it works and how these things are happening and what. But really, these are just proxies, these are things that I've created. And I noticed that other people do it as well. And so much of what we think we know is just our imagination. We've imagined a whole, you know, concept of what somebody is and what the world is and how it works. And it seems to be cemented by a need to control because um, for me to maintain my sense of who I am, I have to kind of tweak everything to sort of support that. And so I'm wondering, is, is Sharanamati also the process of sort of acknowledging that those things are constructs, those are created? Yeah, it's, uh, well, it's letting go of the, of the need to, as you put it, control so that you can preserve that sense of self that you've arrived at in your mind. So, in that sense, yeah, it's an unraveling of all of, all of that, and um, it's an acknowledging who is the, who's the controller, and the more we do that, the more another identity comes to uh, into into the fore, and it's not a, an identity that needs to be in control. It recognizes there's a perfectly competent person in control. There's an order to things, and uh, that's a great. Relief. But it seems to be external too. What does? Because that other other sense of, of um, a true being, or you know, the fact that Krishna's in control, and like that understanding seems a little bit. It seems external. Like that's not something I'm making or putting together. It's kind of either already there or it's coming in sort of separately. Mm-hmm. Don't quite follow that. Um, I guess the question is. Would it be correct to assume that that's something outside the self? Is that something outside of me? Uh, the kind of, well, I guess I need a concrete example. Um, yeah, I'm not quite following. Yeah, but, I'm sorry. But, like, uh, like how you perceive things? Yeah. Okay. How you perceive things. Well, yeah, I don't know if all the questions do, but you, you'll perceive things differently <laughs> in Krishna consciousness. But it's a letting go. We kind of like but Hare Krishna. And that, and it's true, in our sense of material self is something we're fighting to preserve and we have to control circumstances to an extent, or we feel we do, in order to do that. But you know the letting go and so forth is 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 uh, it's complicated because it's a realization and in the context of letting go you may also be doing some controlling that's appropriate because in another sense of identity is coming into 
into the four as a as a servant of Krishna, and you have a sense or an understanding of what's right and what Krishna wants, and so you're going to want to see that that happens, and you're going to be controlling on that level. So, in the context of giving up, there may be some also controlling. Yes, you got a question? This is Imam Basis Maharaj. Um, speaking about surrender, I understand that the first stages of surrender is accepting things that are favorable for a spiritual life and then rejecting those that, are, that aren't. And then where should we go while we're trying to do this? Where else should we go? Well, um, it could be seen like that, and sometimes I've spoken about it like that as a, as a the first stage. But there are six aspects of surrender, and one of them is the primary characteristic of Sharanagati. The others are marginal characteristics. They're not less important, but if we were to, to define Sharanagati, it's going to be defined by a principal characteristic and then a kind of attending or marginal characteristics. And the principal characteristic is Gopritvevaranamtata means accepting that Krishna is my maintainer. So this is the heart of Sharanagati. And this is, you think about it, what we're, we're all trying to do is maintain ourselves. We, it appears that we, if we don't get to work, we may be in, in trouble <laughs> here. You know, So we're scheming in our minds when we're showering and you know, and and every time in between, you know, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? How am I going to, yeah, we're trying to maintain ourselves, and it's a, there's a struggle. I'll go here. I'll do that. I'm making plans, and and so on. To accept Krishna as the maintainer is to stop that. See how huge that is. Now, again, in the context of Krishna consciousness, you may do that also, but um, to uh, stop kind of fending for oneself so to speak, and put oneself in the hand of Krishna. This is the idea of Sharanagati. It plays out in the Braj Lila, in the Govardhan Lila. In the Govardhan Lila, they were offering Brajabasi's sacrifice to Indra, thinking that their sustenance, their maintenance, depended upon that, because they were coward people, and cows need grass, and for grass you need rain. Indra's the god of the rain, so they were performing a traditional worship of Indra annually, and Krishna stopped it, right, by his charming character as a young boy, and they just threw out everything and turned all the offerings to him. Yeah, that's how crazy they were. And Indra thought, who do these people think they are? It's me, I'm Indra, I'm the chief. Indra means the chief, you know, the head god. And then he threw everything he had at them. And, uh, of course, it was nothing. It had no effect. Not one leaf fell from one tree in Vrindavan during the you know the torrential downpours that were compared to you know the the floods of Noah and you know the <laughs> devastation and so forth. Not a one leaf fell from one tree even. And all the Brajabasis acknowledged themselves to be Sharanagatis in the in the primary sense that it, and this is Sarvadharman Pratyaja, this is the same idea, Bhagavad Gita. This is the center of Sharanagati. He says, don't depend on anybody else for your maintenance, just for me. And don't think there'll be any fault in that. Because from other perspectives, you may be found to be faulty. You may not be PC, you might not be dharmic. But he says, don't worry about it. Let him call you a sinner, and I'll take you. He says, don't worry. Sin from other perspectives, but if you're surrendered to me, then you won't be a sinner. Of course, it has to be understood properly. But So they showed themselves to be Sharanagatas in the primary sense. And so in one sense, this is the most important thing. But it's uh, sometimes I've talked about it as you're bringing it up to accept things that are favorable, reject things that are unfavorable. But uh, it's sixfold, so we go through them, accept the unfavorable, uh, favorable, reject the unfavorable. Anukulyasa sankalpa pratikulyasa vajanam rakshikshati vishvashvo kupritve varanam tata. Thinking that uh, the idea that Krishna is my protector, 
and then Krishna's my maintainer. And then Karpanye, then uh, Dainya, humility, and self kind of resignation. And so there's it's sixfold, and there are, it constitutes kind of like five dispositions. Anukul Pratikul means like the disposition is I make a promise. I won't do this because it's not favorable to bhakti, and I'll do this because it is favorable to bhakti. And I'll make my my likes and dislikes. This will be my determining factor, not what my senses say but what Krishna's senses say. For my senses, it may be favorable to sleep late, but for Krishna's senses, he's up early, so it will be more pleasing to be up and attend to him, so I'll be up. In this way, the duality that's created by the senses of goods and bads, happies and sads, that's problematic, that divides us, is transcended in the context of bhakti, in the context of sharanagati, because we don't any longer make those determinations. To a slight extent, you might in the context of taking prasad, and you have some, you know, choice to do kirtan or to do smarna, to do arjunam, so on and so forth. But, but the um, basic idea is, is to very quickly transcend duality. So. In one sense, it's a good way to look at it as a starting point. But um, the heart of it is, as I say, Krishna's maintaining me and to live that kind of life. And so, yeah, it's a kind of a feeling. Krishna will protect me. Maintenance, self-resignation. They're all, you know, kind of similar also. There's some kind of some extent there's some overlapping, if you will. So, you asked me where to go from there. I would say keep working on that part. <laughs> but the main thing, again, the others will kind of come in place by the idea of accepting Krishna as your maintainer. And you can do that as a householder, too. Because obviously it would seem like, well, okay, if you live in the ashram as a monk, you know, as a monastic, then there you just whatever you get, you, you, you just serve Krishna and the Guru and whatever comes your way, that's that's where you stay, this is the clothes you have, they have no money in the pocket. Um, but a householder can do that too. And the way that they can do that is that they have different needs, necessities, and desires, and there's room for them, but they, they have to do it in a certain way so that they're at the same time in the context of that and those desires, like desire for companionship, intimacy, and um, offspring, for example, which are the main aspects of family life. You can do that, but then you, it's just like a family has, uh, you know, a family business or something like that. And that's what they're, they're all working in the business, so the families, for Krishna consciousness, and the fun, then you need some livelihood to maintain yourself, and then after you've paid the rent, and you've provided the food, and the clothing, and the medical, you know, support that you need, God bless Obama, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> uh, you know, and you got... You have all those things in place, you know, then um, there's a little left over at the end of the day, and then you spend that on Krishna. <laughs> That's your fun, you know, you spend that on bhakti. So let's go to the temple, you know, we're put a rupee in the box, you know, and that's your joy. So your discretionary income. I mean, that's what you're living for. That's what that Sharanagati means. Yes, Ragatmika. Yeah. In the or at least in my material world, those those don't really get you far. I mean, I'm that's why I suggest that you don't live in that world. Like, you know, <laughs> for being in the 
or we're devote or people who are practicing or going for Rob Mark. Yeah. I get that you're, or, but in the material world, humility does like that gets you run over. So what to do? Yeah. Or How to live in the material... Self-resignation, that won't get you far either. I mean, right. But it's in the context of, of the theology, and it's, it's self-resignation to Krishna. I mean, you can resign yourself to Krishna and be a uh, very bold, uh, you know, and pushing person. Prabhupada was, and he wasn't just like rolling over to anybody, you know. He said, I came to your country as an aggressor. <laughs> You know, Hanuman was a Sharanagata, and he was humble. He was completely resigned to Ram, but he was beating the hell out of Ravana, you know. <laughs> so, so you have to give it a context. It doesn't mean you're just going to be surrendered to anybody and everybody and be run over and, and just uh, not humble before the lion that's about to eat you but humble before Krishna, and that can take a, a dynamic form to the extent that it may be misunderstood. Like, you know, if I'm so... Here I am talking about humility, right? And I'm sitting on the seat, and you're all sitting on the floor. I mean, what kind of, what kind of humility has this guy got? He's sitting up there, and they're all sitting down on the floor. What? But, you know, if you do this, if you're doing this as a service, then, you know, you see it in context. It's another thing. So it has a dynamic expression. So it's not just... Humility, uh, but it's humility before Krishna. And humility before Krishna can make you very, um, and submission before Krishna can make you like very outraged about the, uh, the world that people are getting cheated out of the opportunity to take advantage of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's teaching and so forth. So we have many big acharyas who are uh, roaring like you know, like lions, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was the personification of love and surrender, but he was, he's compared to a lion also. Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur was called Singha Guru, lion guru, he was like roaring. So, you have to look at it like that. Another question? Yes? I have a question about um, recognizing consciousness. Um, it's like we're consciousness in a material body, and... How do we recognize consciousness, conscious forms out in the world? Like, like the floor doesn't have consciousness, but like, what what forms do have consciousness? Like, like what are would be like? Does mm-hmm. a tree have consciousness, or does mm-hmm. a rock have consciousness? Mm-hmm. Generally, um, wherever you see consciousness, then where you see consciousness, there is consciousness. That's pretty much how we. Make the determination, yeah. Now, um, at the same time, we can say there's also consciousness behind the stone, and although we don't see it, because any form, any shape, there's consciousness behind it. It's the injection, if you will, of consciousness into the pradhan, which is the material nature in a, in a material modes in a in a equibalance. So the pool, if you will, is still material stuff. And when consciousness is injected in it, it starts ripples and, and waves and so forth. And, uh, and the world starts into motion. So for there to be any shape, form, there's consciousness behind it. There's the jiva, and the jiva's source is, is Bhagawan. And so in another broader sense, sometimes you say everything's conscious. There's consciousness behind everything. But generally, we, we think wherever there are life symptoms, consciousness is, is present. And it, according to different forms, it'll be less manifest and less manifest. And that's the nature of conditioning. If it gets a very tamasic covering, then it'd be hard to trace out that the same thing, in a sense, that animates you is also present there. But that's the teaching. Yes? Oh, I see. That's what I meant. Yeah, I meant like life symptoms, and but they don't have. 
Well, you're not going to find consciousness in terms of self-identity, except in higher animal forms and, and human society. You're not going to find, like, you're not going to be able to perceive very much a self-identity that a tree thinks, I'm a tree. Hmm? <laughs> you know, a cow, you can see, has some sense of self-identity. It's not as developed as ours. But um, life symptoms, like Brindarun is saying, consciousness is the life. So we ever see life symptoms, we see matter is apparently alive, like the tree is matter, but it's apparently it's alive, right? Consciousness is there. Consciousness is the life. That's the idea. Yes? In our, when we were talking together, it was, there was more to it than that. It was just, she was asking me like the difference. When does like the jiva come in? When does the, does the soul come in? And so like we have a soul or consciousness, and so we can perceive a consciousness in other things, but where is like the, where's the breaking point, or where does the soul start? So if the tree is alive, does that mean that there is a jiva in yeah. the tree or the blade of grass? Or but then where does where does it end? Does it ever end? Does the rock have a soul? Does the grain of soil have a soul? Or like the seed from the tree? Yeah, does like the seed have a soul. Yeah, does it have a soul as soon as it? Like we were talking about like bamboo, how <laughs> you know it's alive and then it goes down in the ground and then shoots up, and if you sever. Now you have two. <laughs> or she's talking about... It's complicated. Yeah, exactly. It's hard enough dealing with the humans. So. Exactly. I mean, she, and she even mentioned that. She said, well, what about like, the twins who break apart from a single egg and create two twins from that? Mm-hmm. Like two souls or a single soul experiencing more of what's going on? <laughs> yeah, this karma is very complicated. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The life finds itself in very awkward uh, and... Uh, Hard to understand circumstances, but and then you ask also, well, there are cells in the body, so all of those jivas. Uh, yes, then there's one. It's a universe, and there's one predominant <laughs> Brahma in there. Uh, those things aren't addressed very comprehensively mm-hmm. in the scriptures, and um, perhaps one of the reasons for that is that it's really talking to humans. And it's really talking to humans about the necessity of self-realization, love of God, and transcending material ego, and so on and so forth. And otherwise, it's speaking in a, in a general way about consciousness. It says sarvagata; it's everywhere. It's it has its source, and so forth. But it's it's you know, with our uh, Western rational minds and scientific you know orientation and so forth. I mean. None of us are scientists in the room that I know of, but we still live in a world informed by science. And, and so we have all of that you know, mentality, even while we criticize it, we, we do it, you know. We do the scientific, what do they call it, the, the uh, controlled experiment all the time. We're all scientists. We're all making controlled experiments and making determinations from that. So the way we go about knowing without even thinking about it. And, of course, the scriptures aren't really doing that in the same way. <laughs> and so they aren't taking up issues in the way that we latch on to them and, you know, need answers, you know. <laughs> so, um, that being the case, then I guess the answer is to think a little differently about, about it without having to be, you know, having to, having to have your intellect you know, satisfied on, on that level, it doesn't have a lot to do with the necessity that the scriptures are addressing at the present and and the opportunity that it presents before you. And what can happen is that they let those things get in the way. Wait a minute, you know, there could be, you know, are there two souls and a twin or what? Wait a minute. And it's not explained. Maybe I'm not a soul. And maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe I should put the book down and so forth. So you want to avoid that kind of... Uh, intellectual, uh, you know, just like you have to control your senses, you have to control your mind, you have to control your intellect, too. Mm -hmm. Intellectual appetite wants to devour everything, control everything, conquer it, understand it, and rise above it, and so forth. And the scriptures is very much stressing that that's not in the interest of one who wants to know oneself. Mm -hmm. And it's a little anti-intellectual, and in Western 
intellectual circles, that statement would not go over too well. I, I realize that. But it's, it is an intelligent statement. <laughs> it has its reasoning to it based on the premise that there's something that's ontologically and categorically different and superior to intellect that by another method will be able to come out and experience itself and know in a way that intellect can never know. And that knowing is not a knowing of all kind of details. That knowing is the kind of knowing that's present in love. Like I say, you know what to do. Automatic. No, no doubting. When you're in love, you know what to do. And there's no extra knowledge that you're carrying around, extra baggage, and so forth. It's very essential, very streamlined, and it makes you happy. Knowledge can be a great burden. Intellect can be a great impediment. To use it properly, it takes some expertise, rather than to be used by it. So we've talked for a while. So thank you all for coming, and uh, we'll hopefully see you all tomorrow. Shri Guru Vaishnav Guru Parampara ki jai. Shri Bhakti Vidanta Swami Prabhupada ki jai. Bhakti Rakshak Sridhar Dev Goswami Maharaj ki jai.